You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Christmas is about Jesus. That may seem a strange way to start a sermon. After all, we're in church. We're reading about Jesus, we're singing about Jesus, we're talking about Jesus, we're worshiping Jesus. But we do well. It would be wise to orient ourselves to the beginning of this season of Advent leading into Christmas with a reminder that of all the things that we'll do and think about, the gatherings, the rushing about, in the midst of all of it, Christmas is about Jesus. It's not about us, primarily. It's not about parties, or gatherings, or gifts, or trees, or lights. It's first, foremost, and ultimately about Jesus. So as we orient ourselves to this rich, profound, deep reality of God coming to be with us, present among us in Jesus, we come to Luke's gospel to find out what is it about this day, Christmas, this season, this this time of God's coming, what is it that we need to know? How do we need to be oriented? Where do we need to be focused? And Luke says, you want to focus Christmas? You want to understand what it's about? You need to understand that it's, primar- that it's very much about, primarily perhaps, Jesus and his kingship. For Luke, the forefront of the birth of Jesus centers around his role as king. This runs all the way through the Gospel of Luke, and it even runs through Acts, which Luke also wrote, kind of volume two in his history of early Christianity. This kingship of Jesus, the church declares again and again and again, and it all begins in Bethlehem. Luke wants us to know that Jesus is a universal king who requires our complete allegiance. Christmas is about Jesus, the universal king who calls for and enables and requires our total, complete allegiance. Now this shows up in the text we've just read in a variety of ways not least in the mention of David multiple times. So Gabriel comes to Mary, and he appears to her. Uh, She is described only as a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph. And then Joseph is described as being of the house of David. So immediately our minds are drawn to one of Israel's greatest kings. I mean, When you think about the people of God in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, and you think about the kings, Saul may have been first, but David was a man after God's own heart. 
He was a sinner. He needed redeeming, just like all of us. But among the greatest of Israel's kings was King David. And so we're, the first thing that we hear about Mary and then Joseph is that this is about the house of David. Luke continues, the virgin's name was Mary. Gabriel, the angel, comes and says to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. She's perplexed, kind of confused. I mean, all of a sudden, she's probably in her house. Uh, and there's this person there who she hasn't met before and not really sure where he came from. The next thing he says is, don't be afraid, which is a good reminder to us that ain't a reminder that angels in the Bible don't resemble the precious moments figurines they used to sell in Hallmark, Hallmark stores before they all closed down. Maybe you can still get those on Amazon. I don't know. I haven't looked lately. That might be a good gag gift in some of the uh, Christmas parties that happen. Precious moments figure. If you collect those, I'm sorry. Gabriel's not like that. Right? You, you can't imagine a chubby little angel with a harp and a thing that looks like a baby saying, don't be afraid, because why would you possibly be afraid of that? This guy, his presence is significant. He's an angel sent by God to Galilee to Mary to declare the glory of God arriving in Jesus. So let's shift our thinking that this is about a king, this is about majesty, this is about glory that is unparalleled, and it is a fulfillment to a promise made to David a thousand years before. Verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary, you found favor with God. Notice that language, favor, shows up a couple of times in this greeting Favored one, you've found favor with God. Something special is happening here. This is unique. It hasn't happened before. It will not happen again. You found favor with God, and you will bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. And what do you need to know about him? Verse 32, he will be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, the God of Israel, the Creator, the one who speaks and brings everything into existence, that God will give him a throne. And not just any throne. The throne of his ancestor, David. An ancient throne belonging to an ancient king whose royal lineage predates anything anything else on offer in the first century. To understand what's going on here, we need the bigger story. And the bigger story comes in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, chapter 6 and 7. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, after David is anointed king, he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And when he gets it there, he puts it in a tent. And David is the king. He doesn't live in a tent. He lives in a house, a really nice house. And all is well. We're told in uh, the beginning of chapter 7 that the king settled in his house after he put the ark of God in a tent, uh, and the Lord gave him rest. Now, in the Old Testament, rest doesn't mean kind of kick back in your lazy boy to watch the game in the afternoon. It means a king who is ruling over a kingdom that is thriving and operating properly, and all is well. 
And when you read the word rest in the Old Testament, whether it's Genesis chapter 1 or 2 Samuel 7, this is what it means. The Lord gave him rest from his enemies around him. All is well. The kingdom is operating properly. So the king says to Nathan, who's the prophet, look, I'm living in a house. It's made out of cedar. It's fancy. It's nice. And the ark of God is in a tent. And all of a sudden it hits David that that seems a little bit backwards. Like the God who made him king, who gave his kingdom prosperity, who gave him rest from his enemies, is living in a tent. And David, the king, is living in a cedar house. And so David says, this is a little bit out of order or a lot out of order. So Nathan, um, David says, let's build God a house. And Nathan says, that's a great idea. Go right ahead. That night, however, God speaks to Nathan the prophet and says, go tell David something. Tell him this. Are you the one to build me a house? As if David is God's benefactor. As if David can do something for God. As if God needs David to build him a house. Does the creator of everything need a king, a human man, to build him a place to dwell? After all, the heavens are his dwelling place and the earth is his footstool. He goes on, are you the one, prophet, go tell David this, are you the one to build me a house to live in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt to this day. God says, I don't need a house. I don't need a roof over my head. I've not lived in a house since I rescued you from Egypt, but I've been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I've moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why haven't you built me a house? God says, I mean, come on, David. Have I ever complained? Why don't you build me a house? So go tell David, I'm the one that took you from the pasture. I'm the one who took you from tending sheep to being prince and king over my people, Israel. I've been with you wherever you went. I've cut off your enemies from before you. And I, verse 9, will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. God says, if anybody's going to make anything, it's going to be me, God says. He's still telling Nathan what to tell David. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may live in their own place and be disturbed no more. And evildoers shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you, here it is again, rest from your enemies. And then he says in verse 12, and this is where we're coming to the promise. When your days are fulfilled, Nathan, you tell this to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, when you are dead and gone, I will raise up your offspring after you. David thinks he's going to do something for God, and God reminds him of his mortality. One day you're going to die. Long after that, I will raise up your offspring. He will come from your body. He'll be your descendant. And I, God says, will establish his kingdom. 
Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. <laughs> Notice David has that privilege taken away, and it's given to his descendant. God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Hear those words again. God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When Luke quotes and alludes to and draws forth this promise of God to give one of David's descendants a forever kingdom, he is highlighting, he is emphasizing. This is like billboard on the highway, those big LED ones that blind you so badly you can barely see to drive. It's big, it's large. This baby is the everlasting king. His rule, his dominion will never end. God who created the world, who rescued his people, who lives forever, will give everything to this baby forever. He's the king. He's the king. It's unmistakable, and Luke highlights it. And he emphasizes it all the way through his gospel. And all the way through Acts. So that the, the early church, the first generation, when they go out pro proclaiming, Read through Acts 17 this afternoon. People say about them, these folks are resisting the decrees of the emperor by declaring there's another king named Jesus. The message that Luke wants us focused on, start to finish, and especially at Christmas, is that Jesus is king. Universally. Forever. There's nothing that can diminish his kingdom. And not only is he king forever of an everlasting kingdom, the kingdom is universal in scope. One of the things about this Messiah idea, that's what's going on, the, the promised Messiah, the one who would inherit David's kingdom, isn't just going to be king of Israel, he's going to be king of everything. <laughs> this comes up in Psalm chapter 2, and you've got to have this, this sense of this arc, of this narrative that runs through the Old Testament from the beginning all the way in the garden when Adam is given dominion and he betrays that commission, God is not giving up on it. And he promises David that one day you're going to have a son who's going to regain the thing that Adam gave up. This dominion, this kingship, this kingdom is not a thing of the past. It's coming. I'm going to give it. And it's not going to be restricted to Israel. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Remember we heard that. God said to David, your descendant's going to be my son. I will be a father to him. And that's the Messiah. That's the Christ. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage. Brothers and sisters, there are going to be a lot of things that, distract, that attempt to distract you from the kingship of Jesus in the next few weeks. There's going to be commercials. There's going to be sales. There's going to be schedules. You're not going to have a free night. There's going to be children's plays. There's going to be cantatas. 
There's going to be things to get ready for. There's going to be things to prepare. There's going to be practices. There's going to be costumes. There's going to be food. Did I say shopping? There's going to be shopping. <laughs> and in, in the midst of the craziness, it's going to be very easy to forget that Jesus is king forever and of everything. It's going to be very easy to get focused on what have I got to do and where do I have to be and what do I need to get? What am I going to get? And it's very easy in these busy, busy seasons to just get focused on us and what we've got to do and what we've got to do for others and forget that the whole thing, the central reality, it's about Jesus. And in this season, the king has something for us to do. And it's going to require our complete allegiance. The king of everything, the king of the nations, requires our whole selves surrendered in grateful love to him. For the life of the world. Because friends, this is a season where everyone is going to be caught up in all the stuff that Christmas isn't really about. It's already happened. <laughs> it happens before Thanksgiving. And how badly does the world need a church who's just going to step back and say, you know what, friends? This is about Jesus. And those other things can be great and fun and good as long as they don't distract us from Jesus. He's our king. We belong to him. That baby grew up and rescued us with his life. He sacrificed himself. He took our place. Gave himself for our sin so that we could be forgiven, redeemed and brought back into oneness and relationship with the God who made us and loved us, but we were held at arm's length, that we resisted. He's, he's reconciled us and brought us together, not so that we can just say thanks, see you later, but so that we can live for him. How badly does the world need to see the church live for Jesus at Christmas time when things are psycho? When everyone is vying for our attention and our resources and our time, and, our, and it, when it's over, we're just exhausted. How badly the world needs the church's energizing presence and mission declaring this is about Jesus and His perfect love in his undying hope, in his self-giving presence. Don't get distracted. Don't give the glory of Jesus to someone else or something else. Magnify his glory. And how do we magnify his glory? By giving him everything we are. 
complete surrender. All of us for his glory. Because his glory, friends, is unparalleled. There is no kingdom bigger than the kingdom that Jesus reigns over. It's everything. Whether the powers and the kings of the world acknowledge it or not, the psalm that we read says, Jesus laughs at them. The Lord who sits in heaven scoffs as these petty little rulers like Herod or the emperor or any long list throughout history as they fight over pieces of land and property and resources and Jesus just laughs at the silly little play because the stuff they're fighting over already belongs to him. All of it. And it's our job to remind everyone of that reality. Because things are best when people discover that Jesus is king. Things are best when people discover that Jesus is king. So what kind of allegiance does he want? Doesn't Mary show us beautifully what that looks like? Here she is, in very unusual circumstances, to say the least. I mean, when was the last time Gabriel showed up in your bedroom? When was the last time you heard a message like this? And the message was not safe for her. pregnant before she was married is a big risk for a Jewish girl. You know it. Shunning, ostracization, perhaps death. Why do you think she went to live with her cousin? That's what you do, isn't it? To keep your family from experiencing embarrassment and community shame. And as all of those realities must have been flooding her mind as the messenger of God stands before her and declares that God's about to do something very special and very unique in your body. The God who said, let there be light and made the worlds is about to make a baby. A new life. A new king. And Mary simply says, though she's not quite sure how that's going to work out and not quite sure about the details, a little perplexed, nevertheless, her response is, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. It's no accident that the most poignant embodiment of entire sanctification, holiness, perfect love, comes in the body of a teenage girl. One of the more vulnerable people in that society is the shining example of complete surrender to God. 
It's not the big, strong men who are skilled orators or wise entrepreneurs. It's a little girl sitting at home that God chooses to use to change the world. And her response is, I trust you. You have my allegiance. I like the word allegiance because it's more robust than faith. Like when we talk about faith, we kind of, like that's something that maybe happens in our heads and just in our heads and kind of tick the list of, yeah, Trinity and resurrection and the, you can, people say they believe in Jesus and, like, and never do anything that honors Jesus. <laughs> so the word faith, can it, like, it's been misused. But we don't want to emphasize just our obedience because we don't want to think, hey, you know, God told us to do something. We just kind of pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and do what he says. In our own strength. We don't want faith without obedience, but we don't want obedience without trust. So what word can we use? I think this idea of allegiance is helpful. I trust him. He be I belong to him. He's got all of me. And that means I live in a certain way. And that means I behave in a certain way. Because allegiance isn't allegiance if it's not embodied allegiance. Luke wants us to understand without any question that Jesus is a universal king who not only requires but enables our complete allegiance. And we get a picture of that in Mary, who accepts the risk. The name she'll be called, the danger she will face, in obedience to the king. And what's the result? Hope. Not just for her nation, but for all the nations, which is us, friends us because this young girl surrendered her mind her heart her soul and her body to her king we have hope so the invitation is to embody that hope be the people of hope. That a world that is absolutely consumed <laughs> with stuff and everything but Jesus, who is its king, the world needs to hear of a good, loving, perfect, 
holy, righteous, self-giving Lord. And we're the ones who have the message. What a privilege it is. What an honor to be entrusted with this gospel, this good news, this hope. So what would it look like for us to embody that sort of hope in the next few weeks? Maybe we're thinking about our homes and our kids and our schedules. Are we going to carve out time to make sure that our homes and our church is a place where Jesus is king? And is there a way for that reality to characterize our lives in our workplaces? Or when we go to recreation, or when we go to social gatherings, or all the parties and celebrations, what if we walk through the door of all those places with the question, how can I embody the hope of King Jesus in this moment, in this place? What does that look like? met me in my place of brokenness and pain and cared for me. He touched me in my place of grief and heartache and comforted me. He took those things that I was holding back from him. And conquered me. What does it look like? Be the people of hope. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.